audience, Sylvia Frost here with the podcast Indies Who Sell, here with my uh, developmental editor and good friend, Mary Novak. Hey, Mary, how's it going? It's just great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I just had a big engagement party this weekend, so my brain's a little Mm -hmm. fried. Yay! But today we've got someone really exciting um, on the podcast, uh, Michael J. Sullivan, the uh, self-publishing king of high, uh, well, I don't know if I'd call it high fantasy, but it's certainly fantasy with an adventurous flair um, sent in a medieval-like world. Um, his his probably his most famous books are the Rira Revelations and the Rira Chronicles, um, respectively. Um, and he's been self-publishing far before most of us joined the game. I believe that he got, um, he was self-publishing up until 2010, um, when he got a deal with Orbit for, uh, to publish the Rira Chronicles, which is, which is very exciting. So I think, um, much like when we interviewed Rosalind, having someone who has had a much longer term perspective on this business will be very cool to see. And he's also um, worked with uh, traditional traditional publishers, too. Hello. Hi, Michael. This is Michael. How are you? Oh, excellent. This is Sylvia Frost and Mary Novak here to bother you from the podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. I'm so stoked to get the chance to talk to you. Oh, I'm glad that you're like excited to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mary, you want to get started? Um, sure. So um, you had uh, suggested that we look at, uh, well, you suggested a couple of different places to start with your books with uh, Ruria. Um, Chronicles, and we started with uh, Theft of Swords. Uh, and so is that the the first book, like, is that your first book out ever? Uh, well, actually, Theft of Swords is comprised of two novels. It's an omnibus that they put mm-hmm. together. Okay. Uh, all of those in that series are omnibuses. So it's actually a six-book series, which they made into three books. Uh-huh. So the very first book that I ever had published was The Crown Conspiracy. Ah, okay. Which is the first first half of that book. book. Okay, so we read the first two. So um, I saw I mentioned that it seems like you had kind of a long journey towards publishing. And um, one thing that I saw you say was that you looked at a lot of different authors. um, I think you mentioned Steinbeck and others sort of looking at their techniques. Could you tell us a little bit about about that preparation that you did? Yeah, so – Insofar as my journey, um, I have sort of a strange one because of the fact that I didn't actually learn how to write. Everyone keeps talking to me like at these, um, you know, the, the different seminars saying, you know, looking to me to teach me how to write, but I don't know how to write because I never learned um, <laughs> uh, since I've been kind of successful at it. But uh, no, so what the problem is is that I learned in a vacuum. I read and I wrote, and that's all I ever did. Um, So I actually went to Vermont with my wife. Uh, She was making a lot more money than I was, so I just stayed home and took care of the kids, and when I did that, I wrote. So all I did was I read and I wrote, and I started off just writing stories for the fun of it, and then I tried to actually learn how to write, and the only way I knew how to learn how to write was to read, and I tried to read the best stories I could find. So initially, I wrote, I read the stuff that I really liked, which was like Stephen King and you know Tolkien and that kind of stuff and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Asimov. But then I actually tried to figure out how to write better, and it, I knew I had to teach myself more of the craft, even though I didn't even know if there was such a thing as a craft back then. 
so what I did was I would actually pick up classics. I would pick up, you know, I read Moby Dick. I read, uh, you know, uh, what was it, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath first. And then I would go to the drugstore and I would see what books had the little symbol Nobel or uh, Pulitzer winning prize. And if I could find one that had both of those, I was definitely getting that. <laughs> and so I would read those and I would read them as a writer. In other words, I would dissect them. I would look to see how they made sentences why they didn't seem to use the word there, there, the phrases there was or the or and. They would usually cut those out a lot, and they would uh, have much more use of semicolons than I never would have thought of doing. So I would actually dissect how they wrote, and from each of these different authors, I learned various things. Like from Steinbeck, I learned how to do really great description. One of the, one of the best things I ever read was, was um, Steinbeck's um, – uh, I think it's the second chapter of Grapes of Wrath, and he's describing this truck stop. I've been fast. I go back and read that today, just to just to brush up on how vividly he managed to create that. I've also uh, from Stephen King, I learned you know how to do mental thought for characters, how to develop characters through their own internal thought. And you know, Tolkien had great plotting, and then you had uh, uh, John Updike, who I also read was great for being able to describe things without actually describing the thing he was describing, but doing it through metaphor. And these are things I just picked up by studying other authors. And what I would actually do is I would find what I thought was a good author, and I would read several works that they, that they had written, and then I would write an entire novel in that style. Mm. And it would take a year. And then I'd find another author. And in doing this, I would mimic each of these authors. And in doing that, I would find something, even the authors I didn't like, because I purposely read things and tried to write in styles I didn't even like. Um, but I did this, and in doing it, I found uh, in every author, I found something that I could take away. I found a tool, and mm. I kept those tools. Now, I don't always use those in everything I write, but I kept those, and I remembered them, and I can pull them out when I need them. So then when I finally got through writing uh, The Crown Conspiracy, that I just, you know, I struggled very long to figure out how to write well. And when that didn't get me anywhere, I gave up. I quit trying to get published for about 12 years. I started an advertising agency. After that, I went back to it, and I wasn't going to write to get published. I was going to write something just for the fun of it because I had picked up uh, Harry Potter uh, mm. for my daughter to read, and I picked it up and I read it myself. And went, this is the most fun I've had reading oh. <laughs> since I was a kid. Yeah. So, so what the heck? I'm just going to write that. I'm going to write something for the pure fun of it. And I'm not going to care what anyone thinks about it. So I started writing, and it ended up using a lot of these techniques. Um, of the other authors, I just to remember them. And whenever I wanted to do something, you know, really vividly described, or if I wanted to bring out a certain character, I would pull these different techniques out, and that's kind of how I came about writing. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's awesome, yeah. uh, and that's totally in the spirit of what we're doing here with the podcast. Yeah. Um, in that we are reading books by a bunch of different indie authors, specifically. Um. And, you know, our criteria isn't necessarily that they've won awards, but just that they've, they've sold, because I think one thing that we're passionate about, or at least that I'm passionate about, is that there is wisdom in in readers um, and in what readers want. And even if there isn't are if there are elements that I don't quite understand in, in some of the books that are selling really well there, my my thesis statement is there has to be something. And so what is that something and trying to find that something and, and to learn and extract what that tool is. So I think that's awesome. <laughs> In fact, that kind of leads to uh, – so, Michael, I'm curious – when it comes to that something, and like you say, writing, you know, pastiche of, you know, Steinbeck and Updike, and then 
finding Harry Potter and having this, aha, I want to write something fun. What do you feel like comes out the most in your own writing? Like what's, what's, I don't know, is there an experience aside from using the tools? Is there something that you sort of feel like you're channeling more than, I don't know, other approaches? Well, I, I stumbled across what I consider to be the key of writing. And when there I look go. back on it now, there's, there, there, there's actually this, this uh, pattern that I think most authors always go through. And you, first you start out you know, as a kid just trying to be, write something that people can understand. Then you get into like high school and college, and suddenly you discover adjectives. <laughs> you discover, you know – trying to use symbols and all this other stuff that you read about and you're, you're taught about, you know, by these, these very flowery writers, uh, people such as, you know, Herman Melville or, or, or Dickens or something. And, and then people try to emulate that. And I did too. And it's just like this, it's just sort of this method you go through and then you try to be very poetic in your prose. You try to, and you way overdo it. And then what I actually learned when I, when I took all that learning that I had gathered, I just shoved it in a drawer. <laughs> I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to write the kind of book that I would most want to read, mm. and that's what I did. And so I sat down. What kind of books do I like to read? And I realized I didn't like most, most fantasy books. And the reason why I wrote a fantasy book is because I didn't like what was out there because most fantasy books that you read have this wall of noise. From the very first page, they start out with a ghastly amount of information that you as a reader don't care about. They always start off like, in the year of such and such, when the great lord of blah, blah, blah. And you're like going, I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Is there a story here? Are other characters doing anything? And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a story that cut all that out, that made it easy to read, basically like Harry Potter. I mean, I fell right into that book. I mean, you can't not right. be interested from the first page. So I said, I want to write a fantasy book like that. So what I ended up doing, and I ended up learning uh, by the success of it, was I wrote simply. I didn't try and, and embellish. I didn't try to use all these extra prose. I didn't try to be eloquent. I just tried to write as succinctly, and, and this is what I come down to, but I consider it to be the best writing you can do, is if you can um, convey an idea as vividly and clearly as humanly possible in the least number of words, that's the best writing that can ever be. And I don't mean to write like Hemingway. I don't mean to write, you know, he mm-hmm. threw the ball, <laughs> because that doesn't convey anything. That conveys the very action, but it doesn't convey the feeling. It doesn't convey the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you still have to convey those things, but you have to do it succinctly and clearly. And that's where it comes in, using the best verbs, using the best uh, language, and using the removing all the unnecessary words in a sentence. And when you do that, what that causes in a reader is you read this stuff, and it's Easy to understand, so easy to understand that you can't look away. It's like watching a yeah. film. If, if, if you read something that's very eloquent, take Shakespeare, you read a sentence in Shakespeare, you won't really understand it necessarily the first time. So you have to read it a couple times and go, oh, I get what he's saying now. And it becomes this very, like you're translating the language in your brain. But if you read something very easy to read, then it just flows into your brain so quickly that you just keep reading and you can't stop reading if you're at an exciting part and just flash it. And suddenly you, you stop realizing you're reading. You're just experiencing it yeah. and it's that visceral sense that gives such an emotional impact and this is the thing that i learned uh from writing it is that if you write it clearly you can make it vivid without having to go to the extent of being poetic and but you can still get you still have to do some eloquent ele- aspects to it but you have to keep it concise and easy to read 
I have to really endorse how well you succeeded with that because I sat down for our interview here to read Theft of Swords, the two books, so 700 pages. I was like, oh, 700 pages, how am I going to do this um, in time? And then before I knew it, I had flown through like 15, 20% of the book. I was like, okay, I got this. So you, there absolutely is that quality, and obviously you've had it from the beginning of this series of where – there's sort of a frictionless entry. Um, one thing is that the you're, I notice that all all your characters, except for one who's almost a joke at first, um, speak in a very modern, very kind of relaxed idiom, except for the one wizard who's speaking in a sort of Shakespearean um, way until he gets over it. Um, so was that a conscious gets decision? Over from it. The first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that was that a conscious decision from the first? Yes. Yes, yeah. that was an extremely conscious decision, and it, it's odd because a lot of people have said they don't like my books because of the fact that I don't write in proper language for the time period, as if there was a time period. Um, the reality is, is the fact that, yes, that was one of the changes that I made because I didn't there, – there are people who write fantasy, and they want to transport you and make you feel like you're in another alien place, that you're mm-hmm. visiting this very strange mystical place that you're unfamiliar with, and that's fine. That wasn't my goal. I wanted to transport you to a place that was as familiar to you as your own world, but they have swords and horses and kings. But, I, but that's how I felt when I was in Lord of the Rings. I didn't feel that I was in an alien place. I felt like I was in a place that I could you know, live in, and mm-hmm. same thing with Harry Potter. So I wanted to make it so that the language was not an impediment. I, one of the reasons why I tend to use a lot of the old tropes, such as elves and dwarves and wizards, is because I don't have to explain those things. I can tell you what, what a wizard is, and you already have an idea in your head. I can tell you what an elf is, and you're probably going to know – you have a general idea of what that is. I don't have to explain it to you. I don't have to make things up from scratch so I can focus more on the story. And as a reader, you don't have this difficulty trying to grasp what it is I'm trying to say because I have a very complex story to tell. And if I have to explain to you the definition of words as I go along, it's going to get annoying for the reader, and I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want the language to be a barrier. I didn't – I want – be, you to be able to get the jokes. I wanted you to be able to read it casually as if these are real people, not people from another world. Mm-hmm. And so my reasoning behind this was if you were to watch a, a film that was filmed entirely in France about French people, but it was for an American audience, would you use subtitles? Mm-hmm. I don't and, think you would because it's annoying. Yeah. But everyone knows they're speaking French. So the same thing that I did is I translated – because if I actually wrote these books using the language that people would speak in my world, you wouldn't understand it because that, that language doesn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. So that's why that, that there's, no, there's no change in the American-style English idioms. But uh, when you're talking about the wizard, I was making a juxtaposition because he was from 3,000 years ago in the story. So therefore – you have to have a different style of speech because there would be a difference between time. Right. And to give one example, I I wish I had it in front of me, but one of my favorite lines, sorry, Sylvia, was um, that uh, the princess is thinking about her sort of annoying and old-fashioned maid Bernice, but the princess is in trouble, and she thinks, well, maybe Bernice could teach me how to make a tapestry because I'm sure she knows crap like that. Right, and, and because of the fact that it, it, it's such a common term, it's funnier. Yeah. Because if I were to put that in, in more Gothic-style language, oh, she, knows she, annoying, <laughs> she knows annoying. She knows annoying occupations. Because, uh, yeah. occupations. Yeah. Yeah. because that's what you would think if you were there. And mm-hmm. when a writer 
hits on something that you as a reader go, that's exactly what I was thinking, it's much more powerful. And that's why I do it. Yeah, I, I want to jump off that, that last sentence of what a reader would, would think when they're in the situation because I think there's something that, that Mary and I both noticed that was very powerful about these books and um, actually reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you've read or know of Annie Belay um, at all, who's also a self, self-published. self She does urban fantasy. Um, but both of you, you guys do this same thing where – you know, there's an awareness of the tropes and there's no you don't try to be new for newness sake. But at the same time, the main character seemed to stand slightly outside of the conventions of this fantasy world and have an awareness that the reader might also echo. So, like, for example, in the very first scene of Crown Conspiracy, we get this awesome scene where we've got, you know, Hadrian and Royce, who are basically teaching the bandits how to rob them properly. And it's all when I read that, it was almost as if, you know, they were saying uh, it, when they keep thinking about all the things the bandits are doing wrong, it's almost as if the reader who has also been through many a bandit robbing scene like this has also been, you know, thinking, oh, well, they did this wrong and that's wrong. And, you know, this is how it would really go. And so the reader gets to feel like they're in on the situation and are brought right into the story because it's almost as if Hadrian and Royce are echoing that reader point of view. If, if Was that something that you did intentionally or? Uh, yeah, but not really for that reason. Uh, I, I think it's great that that's, that's how you took it away. Um, I mean, I I was conveying the idea that this was a bad robbery. And one of the things I have found that's extremely good is when it, people don't like it necessarily, they'll always say things like, oh, I knew it was going to happen from the very beginning. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people knew Titanic was going to sink in the movie too, but that didn't seem to pro- be a problem. Um Oftentimes, when you're writing and you give a, a direction and the reader says, I think they're going to go this way, I'm pretty sure I figured this out, and then it does happen, they kind of look at that and they feel good about themselves because they feel that they're smart because <laughs> right. they figured out the puzzle. So in that respect, that yes, I know there are certain people who saw who read that scene and they were there's a particular part where this woman is holding back a bow and she's, she's pulling it back with the whole conversation. And one of the readers said, you know, he was getting very upset with me because I kept saying that she's holding this bow back because he goes, you could never hold it that long. It's too hard to hold a bow. And, of course, the main character then goes on to say, and and obviously that's not even a real bow because mm-hmm. you couldn't pull it that long. He's like, yes, <laughs> right. yes. And, yeah. and that kind of thing is what you're talking about, which yes. I didn't really do it as a means of stepping outside, you know, um, a third wall or anything like that to try to address directly to the reader. But it does play on the fact that, when you as a writer are giving the reader what they want, mm-hmm. um, that obviously goes over very well. Yeah. That is so interesting. I think you may be the first writer I've ever heard to articulate something that I know that I love in, uh, or that's the nicest articulation I've ever heard of. The uh, I also love that feeling of where you're a, you feel like you're a little bit ahead of the writer and it's almost disappointing because like maybe he doesn't know about the bows and oh you know eye roll and then you catch up to that line that's like oh wait he was in on it all along and then it's like you're in it together and I absolutely as a reader there's there's almost no feeling I like better than that um, but it's a very subtle thing to capture well the very hard thing to do is what my intent had been from the very early writing of Crown Conspiracy was I always wanted to make it so that I drop a hint 
to something. I don't want you to understand it. I drop mm-hmm. another hint. I don't want you to understand it. But then when we get to the crux of the reveal, I want the reader to figure it out sentences before it happens. Mm-hmm. Because at that moment, if they figure it out just before it happens, then it becomes real. Because yeah. if it's something that hits you out of the blue, you kind of go, what? Mm-hmm. If it's something that you knew way long ago, like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. But if it's something that happens just before and you go, yes, exactly, yeah. and then it, it's perfect. It becomes yeah. logical. It becomes inevitable. And that's the hard part is to make that reveal. And Because, of course, you can't do that for everyone because everyone's going to figure it at a different rate. But if you can get the majority to stumble on it seconds before you tell them, mm-hmm. that's the ideal moment. Cra- and that, like you said, it's very hard to get that right. Craft-wise, I'm really curious, Can you kind of? is it possible for you to kind of break down what you're looking at as a writer in order to try to engineer moments like that? Um, okay, so <laughs> questions get harder. I divide writing into two different camps. Yeah. There is the craft camp, and I define craft as um, anything from grammar to characterization to setting. Um, this is all the things that you can basically learn. Then there is the other fifty percent, which I insist you can't learn because it is generally how a person thinks. You oh, can't okay. teach someone how to think, um, and. I don't know. There, there, there's the 50% that I can't explain is how – basically, you can't teach someone what the next word is going to be because you have no idea. And it's just – if you ever sit next to someone at a bar or a party and you talk to them, you're like, this person's really interesting. Or you sit next to someone and you're like, oh, God, I just want to move away because they're like annoying and they're really dull. That's the difference between – you know, the person who gotcha. can communicate well and a person who doesn't, and it's really based on how they think, the process that they go about thinking, the fact that whether they have thought or not. And sometimes writers, they don't. They're just not very good at that. They wouldn't be as good in the conversation as they would be in writing either. And it's just you can't teach them how to think. So I actually don't know how I sometimes do that, but I know it when I do it. Like when I get to – when I, when I finish the series, which you guys have obviously not finished yet, but when I finish those six books, when I got to the end of it, I literally jumped up and fist pumped and like <laughs> screamed because I knew I had done something amazing. Yeah. And I had never, I hadn't been published yet. I mean, I just wrote it, and I had never had. No one had read it, uh-huh. but I knew that this was great because it was. I'm like, oh my god, this is fantastic, mm-hmm. and no one's gonna read it. <laughs> great. But they did. And, they yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, they eventually did. But at the time, I didn't think they ever would. But I was ecstatic because I thought it had been something really amazing because at yeah. the end of this book, everything comes together in this neat package that I didn't believe I could do. And I didn't even know I was doing it. There's certain things that just come together. When I write, I start a paragraph with an idea, and then for some reason, somehow in the process, it comes to a perfect little story at the end of the paragraph. <laughs> and I don't know how I do it. It just happens. Now, Sylvia, and those are things I can't explain. Sylvia and I, so Sylvia and I, in, in talking about this, both both picked up on kind of a, a maybe a logic strategy element. The way that the characters will sort of spell out their reasoning um, is kind of an important. Often the plots go with Royce and Hadrian spelling out, "This is what I've observed, and this is why I think your plan's not going to work," and and all that sort of thing. And um, and Sylvia, you said I think that you could imagine that appealing a lot to sort of the engineering side of the fantasy world. Um, 
Well, I mean, I I guess the way I'd put it is, I mean, I think one of the a theme that I noticed, uh, you know, even in like, you know, sort of the one of the climactic scenes of the crown conspiracy where they're on that tower. Right. And it's sort of falling apart around them. And they're, um, you know, they're trying to decide which of these steps can I step on? It's like a little giant game of Jenga, <laughs> sort of how I pictured it. That might not have been what you intended. Um, but, you know, this sense of and I think there's this sense of there's this sense of puzzles throughout. And it's very interesting to me that you are inspired by Harry Potter thinking about it, because I think Harry Potter has a similar thing, which is there's a very strong undercurrent of of mystery um, within sort of the adventure, um, even up until the sort of the bit with the princess, who was one of my favorite characters of this of the first book, um, because, you know, you're you're wondering, uh, is she on their side? Is she not on their side? And um, and I think that you in the end, you know, everything is sort of kind of sorted out. Um, much like much like the Harry Potter series where we find out, you know, oh, Professor Quirrell was actually, you know, Voldemort all along. Um, and, you know, we find out about spoiler the alert. bishop. Yeah, spoiler. Sorry for those <laughs> those of you who might who might not yet have taken part in the great franchise that is Harry Potter. <laughs> and, and spoilers for for your books, too, as well. Sorry, that's probably what you Come meant. to think of. It. <laughs> no, no, no. I was talking about Harry Potter. I figured, you know, no one has read that one. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. So, but I think um, there's this sense of, in your books, I, I get the sense of this, there's this feeling that the reader has that everything, there are answers if you are smart and thoughtful enough to look for them. Um, and well, those are things I actually do put in the books. When I, I do try to make it so that there's some kind of twist, some kind of reveal that, because that pumps up the climax. I mean, I do try and make it so that uh, the storyline begins with an interesting intro that gets you hooked and then bleeds into something that develops character and plot and setting. And the pace has to keep having events that keep you interested throughout. I don't like a book that is, you know, all at backloaded, so all the excitement is at the back end or, you know, nothing happens in the middle. I have to try and make it so that it, it peaks and valleys throughout but then I also want the entire book to climax at a certain point so that it's really exciting at some point. And there should be a moment when the reader goes, ah, I didn't know that. Oh, cool. And that is hard to do because sometimes I have to kind of work at that. And what I actually do is I will make a book that makes sense, that's logical, that, that, that could happen. But then when I get done with it, I look at it and go, well, that works, but it's kind of boring. Can I do anything to make it better? And what I'll think of, all right, if – I don't care about logic. If it's not important to have it make sense, what would be cool? Yeah. What, given mm. the situation, what would be the coolest thing that would happen at this point? What would I love to read about? And then I'll go, oh, that would be cool. I'm like, can I make that work? And that's usually how I, I add those things in to try and give it a kick at the end of it. Mm. Yeah. My favorite. The, the interesting thing is they're going to say that, when I wrote the series of six books that you did, you started the first two of. I did the same thing with the entire series because it's one long story that divided into episodes. So that if this was the stupidest thing I could have done, the first book is the weakest. The second book gets a little bit better. The third book gets a little bit better. And I did this intentionally because I don't like series where they keep getting worse. <laughs> and so I to oh my god, that's hilarious! <laughs> I wanted it to be so that the last book was the best. So I saved the best for last. And that is the stupidest yeah. thing I could have possibly done because, of course, I wasn't planning on getting published, so it didn't matter. But if I had been getting published, 
I would not have done that. Yeah, but no, I'm glad I did because it goes up. That's well, right. I, 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 I mean, I don't know if I agree with that statement, but I've only read the first book, so obviously I'm biased. <laughs> and uh, and some of the short stories, but uh, I, you know, I think it's it's an interesting statement and testament to your ability that that worked as well as it does, because usually in self-publishing, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the first book as this like feeder book that's supposed to get your readers so it's off i've right. often heard the conventional wisdom that you want to make sure your first book is your your strongest <laughs> yeah, that, and it, it isn't because the, the the whole thing was is that the last book in the series was the book i wanted to write all mm. the books that come ahead of it are the setup if you can understand that you understand my, my dilemma and it was really stupid but again i wasn't planning on getting published it's funny yeah. that we keep circling back to Harry Potter because um, I, I feel like I mean I feel like it's a rich comp comparison and not just oh that's the fantasy comparison. But another thing is that for the most of Harry Potter, I don't know if she was thinking in terms of the best being last, but from the beginning there was such a strong feeling that the first was not going to be the last and that the first was setting up a very long story. And I also did really get that from um, the the Crown Conspiracy and the other. The other book was that uh, I thought, wow, he's being really um, parsimonious would be the negative version, but being very like circumspect about doling out like hints about who might be the rightful emperor and hints about, you know, who might like I have no idea which of these characters may wind up having a romance uh, with each other after reading the two books. And. That's, you know, it was such, it, se it felt like a really long game. And it also kind of does take more than one book to appreciate, oh, there is a long game that's being played here. You know, there is going to be a well, story about this heir, and let's see what happens. Well, what I did was I, I purposely made the first book, The Crown Conspiracy, into a very concise, individual story so that you can read it and stop. You don't have to read anymore. I wanted to make it that way because I wanted to make a book that people could get into very easily, enjoy, and feel a closure with. I didn't want to have something that ended abruptly mm -hmm. so that you have to find out what the rest of the story That kind of irritates readers. Yeah. But I also wanted it to be an introduction to my world. I wanted it to be simple. I didn't want to hit you with all this background and all this legend and all this, this history because that's what I hate in, in mm -hmm. fantasy books. I wanted to start with a very simple, simple story. You know, In this case, you know these, these two thieves are, are framed for killing the king. And they've got to clear their name. It's a very simple story. It, there is something underneath that's always hinted at, but you don't actually. It's, it's sort of like The Hobbit. Now we're going to shift over to a different story. Mm. With The Hobbit, there's this whole thing about the Lord of the Rings and Surround, but you barely hear about it in The Hobbit. And it, it's a simple story about you know him going to, to the, the, the dragon treasure. But there is all this other stuff going on, and that was the same concept with uh, the, the Crown Conspiracy. I wanted to introduce you to the world in a simple manner so you don't get overwhelmed as a reader and you can enjoy the ride. Well, I think you succeeded. <laughs> I'm curious how much you find the advertising background that you alluded to fitting into this. Is, is there, because this seems to me like a, not even just very thoughtful marketing, but sort of thoughtful planning of a book in the same way as a teaser and not giving too much away and then the payoff and so on. Does that is that a conscious element at all? No, no. no <laughs> all of what I've told you is, is simply my take as to what I wanted to read. I see. I, I, well, the, the real background for this is that uh, Genesis. For the, I had the idea for Rising Agent for a long time, but I wasn't writing it because I didn't want to write anymore. But because I 
you know, I had given up on that. But what happened was I watched Babylon 5, mm-hmm. and then I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And both of those two series had something in common, which was they had complete episodes that were complete stories, but they were all ongoing stories. And each of them had story arcs. They had a huge story arc that was the whole series, and then they had smaller story arcs that were contained within that that went over seasons and developed slowly. And I was just enamored with this concept. I went, this is the future of television. This is fantastic. And then, of course, we had reality TV came out and just ruined it. <laughs> but I was fascinated by this, and I thought, you know what? If I was a, a television producer, what I would do is I would do the one thing that I've never seen successfully done, and that's a fantasy television series done in that style. That was the concept I was trying to do, and I went, well, how would I do that? And I would say, oh, I would start off with the two thieves climbing up a tower and so on and so forth. And I thought, you know, I can't produce that because I'm not a producer, but I could write it. So I ended up thinking of writing a series of six books. There were going to be each like a season, and then each all six of them together would be the entire length of the of the show. And so the idea from the very beginning was how what I would want to see in a television show, what I want to read in a mm-hmm. book. And I that was the entire guide. It had nothing to do with really with advertising. The advertising helped out with marketing the book, but not really with writing it. Okay. So here, here's a question. Um, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time reading self-published books and reading traditional books. And I think there's definitely an argument, as you and many other high-quality self-published authors prove, that there is not necessarily a differentiation in quality in terms of what rises to the top of self-publishing and what gets traditionally published, although it's certainly just by virtue of numbers is, you know, it's, it's harder to get traditionally published. Um, but I wonder... Do you see any difference in the kind of books that are successful, self-published, um, being self-published, and the ones that are, say, tra- say traditionally published? And, and if, if so, what, what might that difference look like? Well, the, the thing that I feel that most people don't understand is a lot of people say that, you know, the problem is that traditional published books are better because there's gatekeepers that keep out the bad stuff. Okay, so that bad stuff is essentially the slush pile. Right. And there's really no difference between that slush pile and basically the bad stuff that's being self-published. So self-publishing, good self-publishing, successful self-publishing is just as good as traditional self-publishing. I mean, there's virtually no difference. In fact, self-publishing might be better in that respect. Right. If you take someone who has been writing, who, who figures it out, who does a good job, who gets feedback from, from you know, his audience or his or her audience. And if you do that, then you're going to be just as good as anyone else. And, in fact, you know, if, if you get self, traditionally published and then you go back to self-publishing, I mean, what difference does that make? I mean, right, you're, right, right. You're, you're, you're already good at it. But the, what people don't seem to understand is that there is a ton of terrible stuff that goes to publishers. It just doesn't get out. Whereas with self-publishing, it gets out, but it doesn't really when you think about it because all of that crap that goes to the self-publishing, it doesn't get out because no one reads it because it doesn't get any traction any more than it would at a slush pile. Right. So people reject it out of hand. Right, right. I would make the argument too that there are things that might end up in the slush pile of of traditionally published books. I, I think specifically when I think about you know, what my preferences are as a reader. Um, I think writers have very different preferences. If you've read a lot, I think it's easier to get fatigued. 
um, with certain kinds of stories, um, especially if you're trying to dig, dig deep into the, the workings of it, you know, whereas if you're a reader, you know, it's it's possible that you aren't aren't tired of that yet. And so someone might read a book, you know, uh, I think a lot of, you know, werewolves, right? <laughs> you can say, oh, well, no one wants to read about werewolves anymore, right? And yet we see, I can tell you many a book that sells, including my own, to the contrary, <laughs> that proves that people still would really love to read about, you know, handsome werewolves. Um, and yeah, you're, you're talking about the, the nature of originality, which right, is right. Uh, uh, true, is that for all the people who were born too late to have been jumped onto the bandwagon of, say, you know, Lord of the Rings, and they read Harry Potter first, you know, to them they have a totally different thing. And you show them Harry, you know, something that's based on a concept of Lord of the Rings, like, oh, this is so cool. I've never had anything like this. They're <laughs> groaning, saying, oh, my God. No, right. it, the worst thing is, is I've been at a bar, and we've had, like, trivia night, and they've had been playing music, and it's a cover of a song back in the 60s, and this is a uh, something that was done mm. in the 90s. And they go, oh, who, who was the original artist? And they would say the, the 90s artist. I'm going, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. I went, you don't know who wrote did this song originally? So, yeah, that's true. Originality is only based on the fact of whether or not you are aware of the previous stuff. So every right. generation needs to have a good author writing that kind of thing. And if you it, obviously you're aware of the fact that pretty much nothing is original. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's that's very true. Um, yeah. So, so turning the topic a bit, because our you know our central thing is always about focusing on you know indies who sell and what makes them sell. And by now you know we've done these little um, explorations of quite a few, so that we start to see some themes. And one thing, um, I, I formulated the phrase characters that are likable but not ingratiating um, for years. In other words, I just found everyone to be a real pleasure to spend some time with. And what interested me was how that wasn't even just Royce and Hadrian, the central characters, or even just the cute sidekicks like the monk that everybody loves. But as you start to get into the thought processes of the villains, they tend to be, you know, like I'd I'd have a beer with them too. Um, And I notice, I feel like that's been a, it's another one of those lightning in a bottle aspects, but I feel like that's been a theme that has run through most of the books we've covered um, so far is there's just this quality of likability and just enjoying spending time with these people. Um, and I definitely found that with your books. I think that's just the difference between building good characters. If, if you write a good character that are believable, then I think people find them interesting. But if you write something that is, is you know, just a tertiary character, you don't add anything to them. And if a character has a life beyond the book, and this is really important, this is what I find aspiring writers fail to do frequently, is that they write a character to fill a role in the story, and that's like terrible because you have to create a real person, and they're in the story. So that person, while they're going to be focused on what's going on in the plot, they also have other interests. They have other things they like to do, and those should come out as well because everyone does that, and that's kind of the concept that I think that really makes characters great, regardless of whether they're good or bad or likable or unlikable. Yeah, I think you won me over to a couple of, like, young, callow kid characters. Um, the young king, or, you know, like, the, the young prince who becomes king, um, and then the young um, village girl that's trying to save her father from devastation. Um, and both of them have a very poignant kind of growth arc, because, like, the young king especially is pretty obnoxious. Because he's shaped by being this spoiled kid, but then 
He doesn't stay a spoiled kid because he goes through a whole war and he grows. And I thought that that was a really deft um, showing and not much more showing than telling um, character growth arc there. Well, that, it's important, I think, to have characters change throughout the story. But uh, he's the only one who really changes in that book. Right. And he's the only one who's supposed to <laughs> because, like you said, it's a very long story. So all the characters in the story change. But they take a lot longer because I didn't <laughs> want it all to happen in the first book. I wanted right. it to happen over the course of the whole series. So you had something. Oh, by the way, I have a thunderstorm here. So if we suddenly get disconnected or because <laughs> I go on power. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, if, if you need to take shelter, um, just let us know. <laughs> Please don't risk your life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I too, I really liked the, um, the princess character, even though she didn't change. I think you did an interesting thing, which is that the reader's perception of her changes throughout the book based on what information they have, um, which is almost as effective as actually having her change. Um, because, you know, all we know of readers is of what we can, uh, all we know of these characters is what we could see on the page. Um, and I especially liked this, this, the way that you drew kind of, how people might have thought she was a witch because she liked to isolate herself um, up in this, this tower of hers and how this tower then was also, you know, almost was the seat of her demise. And, you know, it, it was just a really nice, nice touch. Yeah, um, her her character actually develops a great deal more over the course right. of the series. But, yeah, I mean, I, I did try to make it so you couldn't tell who was at fault in the first book. Uh, some people have claimed that I didn't succeed, so I'm glad to hear that you felt I did. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it was it was really interesting for me because it – and maybe this is just because the way I read, but, like, for me, it wasn't as if I was wondering if she was the bad person or the good person. I was more interested. I was thinking, what kind of choice is Michael going to make here about ah. who she is? And that was like, what kind of book is this going to be? Yeah. Um, and and yeah. it was like, is this going to be the kind of book where, you know, the message that we take from it is that women who like the only way a woman can get power is by scheming for it. And that's sort of inherently a bad thing. And, um, you know, and that she is going to unleash this dark evil from underground because she's sort of naively grabbing a power. Or is it going to be the kind of book which it ended up being, which, spoiler alert, I much prefer, <laughs> where, you know, it, she was just trying to do right by her family and protect people. Um, and so and so. It, that was what it was for me, which was this, it was this very, that was almost the most suspenseful part of the entire book for me. Cause I was wondering, which is it going to be? And then the relief when it was the former was like, cause I mean, one of the thing is because this is taking place in a world that is so familiar, it gives these moments of unfamiliarity, real power yeah. because yeah. the familiar version of that from, you know, maybe a uh, half a century ago would have been that she probably was at fault. Yeah. Um, you know, and and then the, sorry, I have to piggyback on that, but that also leads to some really neat twists. Like in book one, the bishop seems like, or I think he's a bishop, but he the the bad the the guy behind all the bad stuff seems like he is purely a scheming evil bad guy who'd happily burn his burn the whole family and all this stuff. And then the second book, you get in his point of view, and he's much more complex. And the other twist that I really loved was going from the first book to the second. They end the first book saying, oh, that guy that betrayed us, we're going to go get him. And you think, well, they're the heroes, so they're going to 
going to go get him. That's done. And then the second book starts with them meeting him, and it completely turns turned my expectations of what that scene would be like. 100%, like a, a total 180. And I really, it's another part of that enjoying feeling like the writer is taking you in a really capable place, like, or capably taking you to a really good place when these genuinely unexpected um, shifts happen that do seem like they make sense. Yeah, well, one of the parts of that is that I try to take characters, and I don't like making stupid characters. Mm. So... They're limited by their ability. They're limited by what they have resources for, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they make the best decisions usually they can in that situation. They're not stupid. They're, no one does, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not the person in the haunted house and the walls are beating. Yeah. They say, hey, let's stick around for another night. They're not that way. They're, even the, the, the thieves in the beginning of the book, they were doing the best they could based off of what they had to work with. Mm, right. But they just seem stupid because they're so inept, not because they're dumb, but because they didn't have the tools or the experience. In the case with you know, the bishop you're talking about, I mean, he, he actually goes on further on to explain how he's actually trying to help the world, and he has a really good plan, and it's what historically would have made the world better. Um, but it's his way of going about it mm -hmm. uh, that actually makes you dislike yeah. him, uh, that and the fact that he's against the main characters. Mm -hmm. um, but each of the characters, and again, like Arista, she's not going to be someone who who is going to, you know, do something stupid and accidentally, oh my God, I've released this monster kind of thing. She's doing it for what would be considered normal reasons. And all of my characters, I try to make them believable. They're 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 people who would act that way genuinely. And when you when you come up with this guy who's the bad guy, right? But why is he the bad guy? And I had to think about his situation. Why did he do that? And when I did, yeah. he some, became a somewhat sympathetic character, right? Yeah. So every, I really don't have any bad people in my stories, which is odd when I think about it. But you really do hate some of them, so right. I don't know. Yeah, it, it comes across there's, – there's a lot in your work that comes across as a real respect for the characters, respect for the genre, um, having fun without – poking fun at it in a mean way. Um, I am a, to the cradle to grave, um, Terry Pratchett fan, but his approach was much more to sort of like, when I was thinking about the contrast, that it would be more like, oh, ha, 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 they're having one of these, you know, have to fight the dragon, and they send the hero out to fight the dragon, and, uh, you know, and isn't this all kind of ridiculous? And I love his stories, but that was also an element that isn't here. Like, there's not that, oh, isn't it just ridiculous that they want to fight the dragon because we've seen dragons get fought all the time? Um, and it's just like, no, we really got to do this. This thing's trouble. <laughs> right. It's an awareness, but there's a real humanity to it. It's yeah. you're never, yeah. you're never making fun of it. You're, and I think it's, it kind of circles back to my original point where you said, well, was that first chapter breaking the third wall? No, it's not. It's not. It's not stepping outside of it, but it's maybe just being beside it, aware, and then, but also fully a part of it, you know. Well, there, there is sense? certain yeah. things as a writer, you, you're aware of what most readers are going to expect. Right. And when I wrote the first book, I kind of knew, well, let's put it this way, I, I cheated a little bit in respect that I, I kind of knew because so many people have read so many fantasies that they're going to expect me to do the things that were done in previous fantasies. And that allows me to hoodwink them. Because right. if you if you send them down that road, they're going to just go, oh, I know where he's going, and they're going to miss all the clues. And then when they get to the end, and, and in the first book, 
the, the ultimate bad guy that you think is the bad guy turns out not actually the bad guy, but you don't know that to the second book. So right. people come away with the first book saying, oh, this was kind of expected. I knew it was the bad guy. Like, no, he, he wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you'll figure that out eventually. But you can kind of mislead people a little bit because of the fact they're so used to stories going in a certain direction. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because I, I know, I think that I'll, I saw from interviews, I think that you, you commonly get talk about like, well, using all the common fantasy elements, but, and is it about blending them in a totally new way? But it seems like it's more about tweaking them just enough um, and that that allows you to use them and also still surprise. Well, obviously, there's certain oddities to my stories. One, obviously, I, I use modern language idioms and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which usually you don't find in these kind of stories. Second of all, you know, I, I, I address the story with humor. There's right. not slapstick humor, but there's genuine humor in the respect that what I think people would do in a seriously um, high-pressure situation. Like I, I've often said that I've heard the best jokes in funerals. Mm-hmm. Because people are so depressed and under such pressure that they release it by making a joke. And the joke is ten times more funny because of the situation. Mm-hmm. And people do that all the time in real life. I mean, I don't think I've gone a day without hearing five or six people make levity you know, of, of the situation they're in. But you almost never encounter that in most stories. And I always thought that was so unrealistic <laughs> because mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in real life. So introducing that, introducing the, the lack of world building, and introducing the idea of common language, those are three things that I brought to fantasy that I've never seen before. And to this day, I've never actually seen it happen again. I wish someone would copy me because <laughs> I want something well, to read like that. Well, we'll get it out there. <laughs> get the word out. <laughs> so, um, And I, I – uh, Sylvia, is there anything else that you'd like to ask? Well, um, I, I'd love to hear about what you've got planned planned next. What's the future look like for, for Michael J. Sullivan? <laughs> uh, like a lot of work. Um, <laughs> Long. <laughs> so I don't know if you're familiar, but there's – so I did – after I finished the six-book six series, I did – because people wanted more Royce and Hadrian, I, I started another series called The Chronicles, which is right. the time period of when they first met – all the way through to the beginning of uh, the writer revelations, which is what you're reading. Uh, right. So I, 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 I'm not promising anything, but I just kick those out whenever you know I feel I have time. So I'm coming out with the fourth one in that series. I just finished it yesterday. Mm-hmm. So that one has to be edited, and then it'll come out sometime later this year. Um, but in addition to that, I also went back because when I wrote the series that you're reading, there was a history involved in it. Uh, there's a 3,000 years worth of history, and it's explained throughout the series that you're reading what happened in the past, and the reality is that that's all crap. None of it's true. Right, right, the Um, age of myth, right. Yeah, and and that wasn't supposed to be true. When I wrote it in in Revelations, it was never that. It was never going to be that, but I never was ahead of vehicle to which I could tell readers about it. So now I went back and I wrote those books. So That's another six-book series, which was that's already in a can, too. That's waiting to be edited and sent out. Um, so those are done. So now the next thing I'm thinking about is the bridge books, which is the books that come between these two sets. So, you know, basically, if you have the establishment of Navron's empire in the very beginning, and then you have Royce and Hadrian in the very end, there's a section in the middle that's missing, which is the era of the empire. And so that is kind of where I'm turning my head now. But 
That said, I also would love to leave the genre and do some other types of things, like I did with Hollow World, which is a science fiction book. I, I would love to try horror or even some other science fiction novels of that nature, just to kind of try doing some different things where I can actually use reality as opposed to uh, you know having to make everything up in my head. So just right, a little, right. little different would be nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I'm I'm curious uh, what what has drawn you to stay in this world for so long? Money. <laughs> Good reason. I, I understand that reason. <laughs> now, there, there's, there's a lot of people who, when I got done with the series, I was done. I wasn't going to write anymore, but an enormous number of people asked me uh, to keep writing. And, of course, the number one person who got me to do that was my wife because she won. Mm. We were going out one day, and she stopped, and she says, I just realized this isn't fair. And I said, what isn't fair? She says, you can go hang out with Royce and Hadrian whenever you want Aww. to, but I can't. <laughs> So she kind of pushed me into doing some more. So I ended up doing it mostly for her. Yeah. And they, they went over well. So so I keep those out every once in a while because they're, you know, they sell well and, and my wife enjoys them and that's why I kind of do that. But I, I did want to kind of complete the whole story because it it's there and I kind of feel that it would be good. You know, if, if for no other reason when people make the board games, you know, they need a background. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I, ha I have a process question, which is, what's what is your what was your editing process like uh, to begin with, and has it changed at all? Uh, yeah, it it keeps improving over the years. I mean, my first one was was <laughs> it was edited to death, but not in a good way. Uh, I mean, my my editing process now is a system of uh, I, I write the whole book uh, in, locked up in my room, and then I edit it once. In, in a clean path. I, I tend to, the first draft for me is pr pretty close to done. Uh, but then I go through it one more time. It doesn't take me that long to get through it. And then I hand it off to my wife and she reads it and she gives me back feedback from that. Uh, uh, basically structural feedback, you know, basic logic problems, things that she didn't think worked and so on and so forth. Then I take the book back and that, it's had a rest then for a um, month or two. So when I pick it up again and I read it through, I can see more clearly my mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then I take her comments into account and I rewrite the book again. After that's done, generally speaking, she takes it and she runs a beta program where we have anywhere from 25 to 50 readers who have wow. volunteered to read my stuff and mm -hmm. do a very uh, structured uh, feedback system where she has She's found people who, who like my works, who don't know who I am, and other people who have, hate my works. And she <laughs> has them from different ages and different backgrounds, so she gets a really good sampling. And then she awesome. sifts through all their feedback, and she'll toss out the stuff that she knows I'm not going to change. And then she'll <laughs> write down the things that she thinks, you know, these are either iffy or they're really good, and then she'll send those to me in a file, and then I'll go through and make final changes for that. And then it would go off to either, uh, if I was self-publishing, it would go off to either uh, a paid editor um, that I would use, and I found a few that I really like, uh, or it, at that point it also goes off to a traditional publisher who at that point would then do their structural edits, which is very few. I've never had a, a traditional publisher give me much in the way of structural edits because it's usually pretty darn clean when they get it. And then it goes to the process of line editing and all that, and then it comes out. Wow. Very, very, very cool. So it sounds like one of your – it kind of sounds like your partnership with your wife is sort of a secret weapon um, in this business because she's the one 
getting all these like readers that don't like you on board and um uh, uh and just all all sort you know all sorts of uh in in really deep involvement that's very cool yeah she's does she's wears many hats she's my business manager she's essentially my agent as well she's my first editor uh she's an excellent editor so she does really well at that she can both line edit and uh and structural edit so yeah what she does is amazing she does uh, tons and tons and tons of stuff and in fact i wouldn't be published without her so it really is kind of a moot point to be on my <laughs> without her i wouldn't be a published author yeah very very cool neat uh well this was just excellent. fascinating and um thank you so much I michael i didn't bore you uh, no, I hope we we didn't. Yeah, we're we're more <laughs> worried on our end. <laughs> so, um, but this is this was really cool. I've really enjoyed being introduced to your work um, through this. So thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast here. My, yeah, I it's, hope you podcast. continue to read it anyway, even yeah. though you don't right. have to. Right. right. <laughs> you, know, you got us. <laughs> you got yeah, me. yeah, we're we're hooked. Because it ends up really good. I think you'll like it. Right. Now that we know that the sixth one is the best, um, then yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quite the market. Maybe that's just your marketing line. Yeah. That's a. It could actually be a good marketing line. Just keep reading. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> actually my marketing best. line was, when you finish the book, you won't. It'll, it'll be a complete conclusion and have closure, so you won't have to read the next one. You'll just want to. <laughs> Nice. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. It's a real privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was so great to get to pick your brain. And I feel much like, you know, you probably felt after you read one of your classics and got to steal some tools. So I'm glad that we hopefully found some tools to steal for our readers and for ourselves. <laughs> well, I hope you felt it was worth it. And yeah. thank you for inviting me. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye bye.